0: us so tremendously you are the almighty God and there is nothing out of your sight you are sovereign you are carrying out your perfect plan throughout all of the ages from our perspective the plan seems adverse and difficult and yet Lord we know that you knew all possible plans and this is the one that you chose and it'll ultimately bring you honor and glory and good for your people thank you for this morning for your church family here and for our guests that are with us today We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness through the week and for each day. I thank you for each one and each family that's represented here. We thank you for our children downstairs and in the nursery. Again, we thank you for those who minister in those areas. And, Lord, we pray that each person today would grow in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word that is given to us in our own language. We take that for granted, and yet many people around the world have yet to have the Bible translated into their heart language And we do pray for those working on Bible translation, pray for their perseverance, encouragement, and joy in the process of doing that. We thank you for them. And thank you, Lord, that we stand on the shoulders of giants throughout church history who have been so faithful, and some have given their uh, very lives to make sure that we have a copy of your word in our hands today. Thank you for that. We do pray for uh, the church in China, the other churches also, as there seems to be an increase uh, in the intensity of the oppression and even persecution, Lord, of Christians there. And we pray for them, and especially this one church and this one pastor, that uh, you give them just uh, wisdom and perseverance and the ability to trust you in the midst of very difficult times. And thank you for Paul and Diana for their ministry there, and pray for them as I think they're with Daniel and his family in the Philippines right at this time. Thank you for Alice's report, Lord. We know that uh, many within our fellowship here in this church family Uh, Have faced or are facing physical concerns and challenges, Lord. And we pray that we keep our eyes fixed upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you that you're with us, that you're an almighty God. Thank you for today and these moments we have. Pray that we'd be attentive to what you have for us in your word and that you would teach us today in Jesus' powerful name, I pray. Amen and amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. I'm uh, glad our guests are with us today. We are thankful for you also. One of the challenges of higher education is just filling out the university application. If you have been to college, the challenge, some of you can really identify with it, uh, of, of filling out applications for university. I was reading about one young lady finishing up her high school career, and she was making application to university. And in the application, it asked the question, are you a leader? Are you a leader? She contemplated that for a while, and she looked at her own high school history. She had not been an athlete. She had not served in any committees or in any special way. And uh, in her own integrity, she said, no, I am not a leader. And uh, later on, as she waited, because there's always a a delay time before they answer whether or not you're accepted to a university, she kind of second-guessed it and said, maybe I should have fudged my answer a little bit, because universities only want leaders, And a few weeks later, much to her amazement, a letter arrived from the registrar's office with this following message. Dear applicant, welcome to our university. A study of our application forms for next year shows that we have 1,452 leaders in the freshman class. And they will certainly need at least one follower. You know, there's been a gigantic emphasis on uh, being a leader and leaders within Christianity and in uh, corporate terms and elsewhere, and there's no doubt we need good ethical leaders of integrity, and yet the sense about Christianity, in fact, the word Christian, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christian simply means little Christ or Christ follower. And so there's this whole element of following that we need to understand. If you take your copy of God's Word and turn uh, in the book of Acts to chapter 20 of the book of Acts, remember it's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the historical book of Acts, which is the history of the church. And uh, we have been in the process of looking at the history of the church at Ephesus, how it started, what the Apostle Paul did on his missionary journeys, and uh, we are laying the groundwork so that next week when we go into the letter, of the Ephesians, this little letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Uh, We will have a background, a historical context, and understand where this church came from. Remember, Ephesus was a city, a great city in the Roman Empire. It was on the trade routes. It had a port, and it was a a very big commercial district. But it also, more importantly, was a very uh, religious city. It was a city of about 300,000. There were at least five different places where the emperor was worshiped. Remember, the emperor of Rome was one who was worshipped, considered a god. Uh, But more importantly, the major uh, temple in the city of Ephesus was the temple of uh, Artemis, or the temple dedicated to Diana. Artemis was the Asian Greek goddess, and the Romans co-opted her and called her Diana. But at this time, it was Artemis. And, uh, in fact, the temple that was built there was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the ruins are still there. The stadium is still there. And we've seen Paul's time there. He spent about three years there. And then beginning in chapter 20, he left Ephesus to go up into Macedonia, what is uh, northern Greece now, and uh, travel around. He's been gone for about a year, even though there's only like three paragraphs from the first part of chapter 20, down to verse 17. He's been gone from from Ephesus for about a year. And it tells us, as Dave uh, read for us, that uh, he bypassed Ephesus on his way back. He was trying to get to Jerusalem in time for this Jewish celebration of Pentecost. And he wanted to make sure he arrived there for that. And He knew if he stopped in Ephesus, it might delay his travel. And so he sends to Ephesus, which is some 30 miles north of where he's at, Uh, on the coast, and he has the elders or the leadership from the church at Ephesus come down. Uh, Probably by the time he sent a messenger up to get the elders and that they returned, it was probably about three days. And so he's there, and his purpose is to uh, give this farewell address, farewell speech to them, uh, because he does not believe he's going to be coming back to Ephesus. He's invested very much in this city and this church And he's taught many people, and many people have come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And so that's kind of the setting that we come up when we come to this passage. Before we get to the passage, I must mention that in the book of Acts, when we see preaching done or teaching done, there's only one of two results. Uh, There's either riot or Revival riot or revival. As you go through this historical book about the birth of the church, we see that there is much adversity, much opposition to the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Savior. We live in a country where we still, we meet freely, we have buildings, we have ministries, we have radio and TV, we have public ministries, and uh, we have a hard time identifying with these early Christians in the first century as they went into the pagan world, the very pagan world, to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Although I must add, I think historically the 21st century is much like, in in the West anyway, is much like the first century Roman Empire in many, many aspects Uh, Before we go into the text of Paul's address to the Ephesian elders, there's a few points that I need to make here about this passage. We're going to be looking at uh, the last half of chapter 20, his farewell address. This is the only speech in the whole book of Acts that is addressed to a Christian audience. This is the only one addressed to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. All the other sermons that are recorded or speeches are uh, preached, whether to Jewish people or Gentiles, their evangelistic sermons, or their legal defenses made before the legal authorities in the early days of the church, or their speeches before Jewish and Roman authorities, which come near the end of the book. So this is unique in the recording, as Luke wrote down uh, Acts. It's uh, unique that he recorded this lengthy address to the Ephesian elders, Secondly, uh, the leaders here are called elders. They're called three different terms. They're called elders in verse 17, pastors in verse 28, and overseers in verse 28. And it's evident in this text that uh, all three of those terms are referring to the same people. Pastors is a generic term which kind of describes their role. Uh, In our day, I think there's much confusion about what a pastor is. We tend to look at it as an office rather than a spiritual gift. Uh, But the elders and the uh, overseers uh, are also used here. Uh, Elders is really a term of the office. We have elders in this church, and their task is to give oversight, spiritual oversight, to the ministries of this fellowship. And so that's one another thing to look at in this. And also there's deacons mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. We have uh, deacons who served and are ministers of mercy in that uh, the church at Ephesus had a team. These are plural forms. It wasn't one guy running the show, and uh, I grew up in a in a uh, tradition in a church, even though I was a pagan until I was twenty eight years old. Uh, I went with my parents and and the the pastor was the I called him the grand bah. you know he had control over everything, he ran the show. I later began to call them benevolent dictators, uh, in a sense. And I say that lovingly and jokingly. But uh, we believe that the Bible teaches a plurality of leadership. In other words, uh, it's a group of men who are elders and leaders in the church. And uh, we complement one another with our spiritual gifts and with uh, different wisdom and insights and backgrounds. And I think it is a very uh, New Testament model for the church. And fourth, uh, I believe that Luke was in the presence of this speech. Luke has not been there up until this point, but in verse 21, verse 1, it says, we, it uses the pronoun we, and so Luke uh, traveled with the Apostle Paul, although he was not always with the Apostle Paul, so Luke was probably present when he heard this speech, and he may even have made notes at the time of Paul's speech in order to recall it later, to write it down in its long form. Uh, so the Apostle Paul has come to this, and we see in this passage, I think the overall uh, impression, I guess if you will, our central idea, it's more than just about followers and leaders, but it's about a cause, a compelling cause. Now there are a lot of things that call for our attention and call for our energy and efforts and finances and everything else to invest ourselves in in this life. But this is a compelling cause, and we're going to see in here that the first thing that followers do is we engage our culture. We engage our culture in verses 19 through 21. Uh, this is kind of past tense. The apostle Paul is saying in verse <clears throat> excuse me, in verse uh, 18, "You yourselves know." In other words, he's going back historically, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time." And, of course, he spent three years there. Another amazing thing about this is he's probably about four years out from the beginnings of this church, and there have been elders appointed, spiritual leaders of the church, who have been appointed, who are qualified to lead the church. And uh, so that is, in the New Testament, we see that, that they grew very quickly. And he tells them in verse 19 that uh, we endure tests of the flesh. There is adversity, just like our Chinese brothers and sisters in Christ experienced today, and maybe still are experiencing, that there are tests of the flesh. He said, verse 19, Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. And if we go back into the history of the book of Acts, we can see that typically Jewish populations were against him because he was proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ whom was crucified And so he had internal pressures uh, to remain humble, testing external pressures. And he was teaching solid doctrine. Look at verse 20 with me. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly from house to house. And so followers of a compelling cause engage culture. And we see that in the Apostle Paul's ministry as he travels around the then known world. He had a public ministry. He went house to house. In Ephesus, he rented a hall and they would meet there on a daily basis. And he had a message to communicate. with This this compelling cause engages culture. In verse 21, look at the message he has, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance here means simply changing our minds about God. A very brief definition of repentance is changing my mind to change my direction. We're going this direction. As unbelievers in Jesus Christ, we do a 180, and we follow him. A change of mind, a change direction. And he tells us that faith in God, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he uses the full name, the Lord Jesus Christ here, this Messiah. And he preached exhorting the world to change his mind publicly and then about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He shared the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the compelling cause. That is what followers of a compelling cause do. We engage culture. That's part of our our, our vision, vision mission statement is that we engage our culture. And you know how we do that. It's because you are sprinkled out throughout our community through the week. You know, you have contacts and connections that the rest of us don't have, whether it's at your school, at your workplace, your neighborhood, in your own family perhaps, and you are the ones who are sent out. I love the story about somebody asking a pastor, where is my church? Where's your church at? And of course they meant the physical structure. And he said, well, uh, so-and-so's down at the PUD and so-and-so's over at the nursery and this guy's over at the school and the church during the week is scattered. And we're spread out and that's for a purpose and a reason. When I was... Uh, In my third year of seminary that summer, I did an internship, uh, a pastoral internship. And uh, the pastor I interned under, he had this habit of going around asking people, uh, how is your spiritual life? How is your spiritual life? And he was kind of, uh, you know, confrontive about that. Of course, what he wanted to hear to his question was that these folks were reading their Bible and they were praying every day. And yes, that's important. But the problem with that is that on that basis alone, the Pharisees win every time, okay? Because when you reduce your spirituality to a list of rules, you can be very disciplined in your spiritual disciplines and yet remain proud and spiteful. And followers of a compelling cause don't depend upon that. And so how do we measure spiritual growth? especially because the Pharisees always win on a rules thing. Uh, One time I asked a man about that. How do you assess well-being for your soul? He immediately answered, I always ask myself these two questions, and I'm asking them to you because I've asked them to me. (laughs) Number one, am I growing more easily discouraged these days? Am I discouraged more than I was a few days ago? And number two, Am I growing more easily irritated these days? You know, is my irritation quotient with others rising? At the core of a flourishing soul are the love of God and the peace of God. Think of those two elements of God, love and peace. If peace is growing in my heart, I am less easily discouraged. If love is growing, I am less easily irritated. That's a helpful diagnostic for access or assessing the health of my soul. And so the question is, is how would you answer those two questions? Am I growing more easily discouraged these days? Am I growing more easily irritated these days? And obviously, to understand the love and the peace of God, we do have to be in his word. We do have to be in commune with him. Those, that's obvious, but the, the motives are all different. It's not just a check mark off that you read a certain passage of scripture this day. And so how would you answer those two questions? So followers of a compelling cause engage our culture. Secondly, we exhibit certainty. We exhibit certainty in verses 23 through 25. Look at verse 23 with me. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, or verse 22, I'm bound in the spirit. I am on my way to Jerusalem, knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions wait for me. We are constrained to move into the future. The future is coming, whether we like it or not, and whatever it holds, and we're constrained to keep on keeping on whatever our opposition and adversities are, constrained by the Holy Spirit as believers in Christ, this compelling cause, we exhibit certainty that there is a God. There's much we don't know. There's a lot we don't know. We don't know what the future holds, and yet we are constrained by the Holy Spirit. It's declared there that God is faithful to his people. He will not leave us or forsake us, and he will be with us. We should abandon ourselves to the process. Look at verse 24, what the Apostle Paul said. But I do not consider my life on any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course, remember that phrase, and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He is on his way, abandoning ourselves. This is a declaration of finishing well, finishing well. Uh, I just had a conversation with one of my cousins. down. She lives down in uh, Weezer, Idaho. And uh, she was uh, had a conversation with her this week. We were talking about my mother, her aunt, And I was able to tell her that my mother finished well. 94 years old, she finished well. Never lost her faith. Uh, Always was just uh, loving the Lord Jesus Christ. She finished well. So abandoning ourselves in order to finish our course, because God has given us the courage to do so, even when everything looks out of sorts. You know, the problem, though, about compelling causes (laughs) is that Many, many people, even evangelicals, their compelling cause, the most compelling cause is their selves. I can say that because I've been there, and I do visit there once in a while. You know, this flesh is, is not redeemed yet, and it wants what it wants when it wants it. And so that's the problem. That's what we're up against is a compelling cause. It sounds good from the armchair Uh, But when we get out there with the Apostle Paul and the challenges to finish well is that, well, I I don't feel like it, or I just am hurting, or I don't want to do that. And so we need to recognize our role. Look at verse 25. The Apostle Paul clarifies our role. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. He was serving others. It was about others. I think it was General William Booth, uh, founder of Salvation Army. Uh, he had a little saying that said, God and others, God and others. He put it very succinctly, serving God in the reality of our lives. And then thirdly, following followers of a compelling cause express courage, express courage. In verses 26 six through 27, the Apostle Paul makes this statement. It sounds like it comes out of the Old Testament, out of Ezekiel. In verse 26, he says, therefore, I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring you the whole purpose of God. He's basically saying that he has a clear conscience, that if anybody sat in his teaching, if anybody heard his voice, they were going to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him and thou shalt be saved. And so he had a clear conscience there. And so he was expressing courage. In verse 29, begin a series of warnings to these spiritual leaders, these elders of the church at Ephesus. Look at verse uh, 28, excuse me, be on guard for yourselves and for all of the flock among, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In this one verse, we see the Trinity. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this triune Godhead who has such a focus on this church thing, this bride of Christ, this thing that we are involved on. And he tells the elders, he warns them, be on guard, first of all, for themselves. You know, if a man's life is all out of sorts, how can he guard the flock? How can he be part of that without taking care of his own soul? Be on guard for yourselves and then for all the flock. And says the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. By the way, the elders are not elders because somebody voted them into office. It's because God appointed them for the task. If any man aspire to the work of an overseer. And that, work, that word aspire in Timothy is an interesting word. It means that it's God-placed. It's not something because he wants to be uh, some kind of an office holder or have the kudos of leading a church. That's not it at all. It says there that he's he was appointed by the Holy Spirit of God and to shepherd the church of God, the God the Father. And uh, the grammar here is difficult, but uh, the old uh, some of the old commentators used to think that This is wrong because God didn't shed his blood for the church, and yet God, the blood of his own, is really literally how it's translated, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us and who is the groom, the bridegroom for the church. And so Jesus Christ is the one and the triune Godhead here. And so we're in danger of personal blind spots. We're in danger of external attack. Look at verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in uh, among you, not sparing the flock. And, of course, he's using that as a metaphor of false teaching, of false doctrine that will come in. And then internal corruption in verse 30, and from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And uh, there is that that happens. Uh, And so we need to be on guard. And you notice that the elders, the shepherds, if you will, are uh, to guard and protect and care for the flock that God has entrusted to them. And the Apostle Paul reminds them that financial greed is a very poor motive and the wrong motive in verse 31. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that day and night for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. And he goes on to, talk about his own ministry, that he didn't covet anybody's silver or gold, that he worked with his hands, especially in Ephesus. He was a tent maker. He would probably work in the mornings, teach in the afternoons, and that way he provided. He said it is more blessed to give and receive, verse 35. And then he says the goodbyes in verses 36 through 38, and this is where we leave Ephesus historically and before we launch into uh, the letter to the Ephesians written a little while later. When he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship, and he parted from them and set sail. And so followers of a compelling cause engage culture, and this was demonstrated in Ephesus for sure. Followers of a compelling cause exhibit certainty in God's care, God's sovereignty, and God's plan. Even though Paul knew he was heading into more persecution and more trouble, he exhibited certainty in the power of God. And finally, followers of a compelling cause express courage, express courage uh, in what God is doing. Uh, the church, <clears throat> the church, uh, one of the church giants was St. Augustine. Uh, by the way, there is St. Augustine, Florida, and that's how we pronounce it. But when you refer to the church guy, it's St. Augustine, okay? Uh, but he records in his works, I think it was in Confessions, he once approached the gates of heaven. He dreamed that he approached the gates of heaven. And an angel stopped him before he could enter and said, Who are you? And he, he, re- he replied, I am a Christian. The angel said, No, you are a Ciceronian." Uh, And here we judge people by what interests them, and you have interest only in the classics. Augustine claims that as a result of that dream, he changed his habits and devoted much more attention to the scriptures and holy living. Such a focus in life is the centerpiece of this chapter, if you will. Paul's challenge to the Ephesian elders, uh, through them, the Holy Spirit and the word would speak to us as well. Raising questions about our values, our focus in life. And it's really easy in our hectic world to get delayed and to ignore the eternal. Uh, We Americans are very good at that. Paul commended these brothers in verse 32. To God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified or set apart unto Christ. This chapter calls us back to the basics of the priorities of the Christian faith for which the Apostle Paul and many, many others down through history have ultimately gave their physical life for but are enjoying eternal rest. The Apostle Paul, and hopefully this is all of our life verse in in this passage, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race, and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying the gospel of God's grace. Heavenly Father, this morning, uh, we have been challenged by your word. And as your Holy Spirit applies it and brings it back to our memory, even in the days ahead as you give us our days, uh, may we seriously consider, are we really followers of a compelling cause? Or are we simply plain church or whatever it is we call this? And Lord... Uh, May we be a people who are just determined to live our lives for your grace, for your glory, and for your mercy, and that you would be honored and glorified. And, Lord, as your followers, for every person who believes in Jesus Christ here this morning, may we allow you to empower us to accomplish what you called us to, that we may be good communicators of your grace to friends and for other people we know. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen.